the weekend variety wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Uh, if you're listening in the future, I h hope you're listening on the podcast. God, you better be. Um, we've had some trouble. Um, it's not at our end, apparently, with uploading last weekend's podcast. Apologies. We are working on it, and I appreciate your frustration. It's a hassle. Yeah. Okay, so if you're listening live, a special hello. And coming up this evening... Uh, between 11 and 12, our album Turning 40, comes a time, Neil Young, his return to folky niceness. And does he deserve to be in the Country Hall of Fame? I don't think he is. Uh, also, Peter Lang, botanist extraordinaire, replies to that article that was up on Stuff saying, Cowrie, die back, get over it, it's just a natural occurrence, everything's going to be fine. Documentary Edge Festival is on be listening to win a double pass to pretty much anything you'd like to go and see at all and regarding the documentary edge festival we've got a bit of a special tomorrow between 10 and 11 a couple of amazing stories that solar-powered plane that circumnavigated the earth there's a gorgeous documentary about that called point of no return we speak to the directors and also uh, a moving really interesting documentary. It's called A Murder in Mansfield. Imagine you're a kid. Imagine you were 12 and you heard your mother murdered. Your father goes to jail for it. He buried her under the concrete in the basement. Um, and you testify against him in court and he says he didn't do it. 26 years later, he manages to corner him face to face and asks what happened. That movie is a murder in Mansfield. Go to the Documentary Edge Festival to find out uh, all the times and schedules and everything. Science as usual this hour. Astronomy with Grant Christie. A combination of music and astronomy up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Go there and uh, give it a crack if you like. I have a listen to some examples of solar systems playing songs. I've never really been into this sort of thing, but it actually sounds all right. Next up, though, Emily Park is our science reporter this week from the University of Auckland. Good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Emily Park from the University of Auckland is our science reporter this weekend on the roster. Um, there's been a bit of talk about this, the octopuses being from outer space, uh, yes. things like this, that they've got too many genes and there's a mystery with the uh, Cambrian explosion, which is an amazing thing, isn't it, from the fossil record. It was a massive flourishing of new species. Yeah, so... Um so this paper came out a few months ago in a journal called Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. And um, I heard Susie Wiles covered this octopus claim that it made along with um, yeah. a bunch of other media outlets over the last month. So it's this paper. So panspermia, again, is this idea that life was originally seeded and perhaps continues to be influenced by little lifey bits from space that come here on comets, be they genes or microbes mm. or what have you. And... Um, 
this paper was reviving that hypothesis in various ways, or according to the authors of the paper, it's a hypothesis that never should have lost any cred. Um, it was so, Fred Hoyle's favorite, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and they actually they give they give the instead of talking about panspermia, they talk about what they call the Hoyle Rick Ramasin thesis of cometary biology. Oh, that's much easier to say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> it, it gets rid of the perhaps loaded label, at least. Um, <laughs> In any case, so they make all these claims in the paper and um, everyone latched onto this claim about octopus intelligence being seeded by space genes, which was amazing. But um, I thought it would be fun to talk about the paper again because it's full of other amazing claims which didn't get as much attention. Um, and especially as a philosopher of science, it's a fascinating paper because there's all these claims being made, but the structure of the arguments is worth paying some attention to as well. Um, so I wanted to tell you about one of the other claims, which I actually think is more outrageous sounding than the one about the octopus. So um, they talk about tardigrades, which I've talked about on the show before, these little microscopic, bear-shaped, adorable organisms that can survive anything. In space, you can keep them up there for months. They don't care. They've got legs, a front and a back. They look like an animal. They're incredible. You can't kill them. You can freeze them down to yep. just above absolute zero, and they go, yeah, what, whatever. Yeah. Right, so the authors of this paper bring up tardigrades. They point to these sorts of features that you just talked about, the ability to survive deep freeze or be blasted into space and survive. And they claim that tardigrades' ability to survive in space in these ways is incompatible with natural selection acting on them on Earth. It must have come from natural selection acting on them in space. Therefore, tardigrades must have evolved in space and been blasted to Earth and taken up residency here. Um, this is a quotation from the paper. A plausible evidentiary case for proof of cosmic panspermia could rest entirely on this one example, the one example being the tardigrade. Because they can't... Um, that's an, a, a, one of those fallacies, isn't it, from incredulity. They can't think how it might have happened through natural selection, so yeah. they're saying it must be space. Well, that's one issue, but I mean, an, an even more basic issue is it just sort of shows a fundamental misunderstanding of biology and natural selection. So saying that about tardigrades is sort of like saying something like um, people are so good at driving and we were good at driving as soon as we invented the car. Nothing can explain why natural selection would have made us so good at driving right. except if we evolved in some alternate universe with cars. We're not good at driving because of cars. We're good at driving because of underlying mechanisms like learning and spatial reasoning and we have great brains for that sort of thing and picking it up quickly. And similarly, tardigrades have presumably all of these mechanisms for being robust to all sorts of extreme environments. Here's, here's another problem. You, they have a look. People are interested in tardigrade DNA, and they share their DNA with the rest of the biology on Earth, don't they? So that would be a real big hurdle for these people to try and explain if they were coming from outer space or another life form. Indeed. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of kind of empirical problems with that one. Uh, can I tell you about one more? No, oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed these people publish this with a straight face. Yeah, well, so I agree. I also think there's a, perhaps a salvageable claim to, which I can get to in a minute. But oh, here's one more kind of crazy, but I think less crazy sounding claim from the paper. So the 1918 flu epidemic, they cite this as another supposed piece of evidence in favor of panspermia. So in 1918, the flu, which 
we know is transmitted from person-to-person contact popped up in all these different spots in the globe in a relatively short amount of time. So the authors of this paper say no way could it have spread that fast in 1918, which is before international air travel. If that happened today, we'd then go someone got on a plane and, you know, took it to another continent. Mm -hmm. They say the only way to explain how that happened... um, is viruses falling from space in lots of locations around the same time. Mm-hmm. So again... Um, That's a maybe? Well, un- I think unlike the tardigrade case, it at least seems sort of on the surface compelling. Um, how did that happen? It's kind of a mystery. But There, was a lo- there were many people travelling a lot in 1918, end of World War One, people going home, lots of refugees all over the place. Did it still happen too quickly for that? Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, part of the problem with all of these arguments is they rely on all these unarticulated assumptions about probabilities. Um, they're saying it's there's no way this could have happened. What do you mean by no way? And, you know, how many, what are the numbers? Um, but it seems like there's a missing opportunity for some actually testable claims to be made here. So um, last time I was on the show, I talked about this related, or somewhat related idea of viruses, this recent research showing that there's viruses falling from the sky all the time. Mm. And in that other paper I talked about, people were thinking maybe they're being swept up into the atmosphere and then rained down in little water particles. Mm. So why not see if that could have explained the flu epidemic? Yeah. Gosh, there are a lot of viruses, aren't there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know... People that listen to the show regularly know exactly Here what's coming. I'll just say it that if you put all the viruses on the earth end to end, they would make a line reaching 200 million light years. It's just nuts. Anyway, so there you go. But so the other thing, the one other thing I wanted to say about this paper, which the octopus and all these other examples, they all, all of these arguments have the same structure, which is basically look at this amazingly complex organism or process or structure in biology. There's no way that the explanatory toolkit of biology and genetics and chemistry that we have now could explain that. Therefore, let's invoke some outside influence coming in, um, which must be a better explanation. That's, isn't that the same argument the intelligent design lobby... Exactly. Except promotes? in this case, instead of an intelligent designer, we're invoking space genes. Right. So I'm, I'm not saying that the authors of this paper believe in intelligent design, just that there's this hugely problematic argument structure there, and there's no particular reason to think that um, space genes are any better than an intelligent designer in the sense that just because there are gaps in our understanding doesn't mm. mean we can't fill them in some other way. It's exactly the same flaw in thinking, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. All right. Good one. Uh, now, some interesting results from sleep research. This is um, part of the digital uh, revolution. You take your phone to bed and watch stuff, or you, you can't. Phone addiction, basically, or that's what some people are calling it. And it marks up with your sleep. Yeah, so I guess there's been tons of studies on this, and we've known for a while that looking at screens before you go to bed is bad for you. Um, It messes up your sleep quality. It makes you less alert the next morning, um, messes with your circadian rhythm and your melatonin production and all those sorts of things. Um, But I guess, so a study came out earlier this week in the journal Physiological Reports that seemed interesting um, because it pointed out that most of the studies that have looked at the effects of looking at a screen before you go to bed have been taking people into a sleep lab and giving them a sort of fixed bedtime, say 10 p.m., 
letting them look at a screen or not, and then seeing how it affected their sleep. So what this study did is um, look at the effects of looking at a screen or not, but they let people choose their own bedtime. And what they showed was people who looked at screens before bed, uh, doing whatever they wanted on the screen, surfing the web, tweeting, and so forth, as opposed to looking at books or magazines or non-screeny things, almost invariably went to bed a lot later than when they were looking at paper. Uh-huh. Um, so not only does it mess up your sleep quality, but it makes you make poor choices is basically the upshot. Okay. Well, if you're on the net, is it, is it just a screen or is it the net? Because if you're on the net, you know that there are a billion opportunities for something new or interesting uh, just down that tunnel. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a book, um, it's the book. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So in this study, it was paper versus screens, and they were allowed to do whatever they wanted on the screens, including reading an ebook or mm. um, surfing the net or whatever. So I think the, yeah, ultimately the, the point here is about looking at a screen that emits light as opposed to looking at paper. Ah, uh, uh, okay. But I'm sure that the distraction factor must figure in too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, you would think so, uh, depending on um, how they ran the experiment. Uh, any other, any flaws in that particular study or think claims that people are making that they um, are overstretching? Well, yeah, I'm not so much in that particular one from what I saw, but you were mentioning this other study about uh, oh. de- depression and anxiety and so forth. Oh, so God, we were I talking thought it was the same damn study. No, sorry. it's a different one. So they're, they're both about um, looking at screens before bed. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But we were talking about this other one before that just yeah. came out about how yeah. looking at screens before bed can cause all these different mental health issues. And that was a case where it looked like the study itself might not have necessarily involved subjects looking at screens. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this is courtesy of Stats Chat. Let's give yeah. them a... Um, a shout out because they're well worth it. They're a public service. Uh, so often you read stuff in the media and it's breath taken just breathlessly and stats chat pounce and say, uh-uh, this is what's really happening and good on them. Yeah. Subscribe and you get updates all the time with things that are happening in the media. So good on them. I had one other sleep research story though, if we have time. Yeah. Do we have time? Okay. Um, So, can getting sleep for longer on the weekend make up for lack of sleep during the week? Which is something I've always wondered about because I tend to not sleep much during the week. Um, So, in this study last week in the Journal of Sleep Research, they looked at results showing that if you get really short sleep every single night, seven days a week, or if you get really long sleep every night, seven days a week, uh, it's bad for you and you'll die earlier. So, increased mortality rate. but the study suggested that if you get short sleep during the week and long sleep on weekends, it might not be so bad for you. Okay. Just regarding sleep and how important it is for our well-being, why are there children? This is something I've wondered about a lot. I mean, it seems like <laughs> what's missing in all the sleep research I've been reading about recently, and I've been reading about it a lot recently because I never sleep because I have children, yeah. is what do you do if you have babies? Because... Um, All of the research on sleep suggests that if you get less than seven hours a night regularly, it's terrible for you and you'll die earlier and get diseases. And children are basically like these... That's that's the number one function, sleep reduction. Which is really torture. Yeah. yeah, They're torture devices. Exactly. It's what um, people do with captured spies. Yeah. 
Um, it's strange evolutionarily, isn't it? That because but having babies is kind of like key in reproduction yeah. and survival of the species. But so I would have thought. This study made me think there must be some longer-term version of this. Instead of weekdays and weekends, it has to be something like if your sleep is reduced for your child's first year, you yeah. can make up for it later. I hope so, anyway. Yeah, okay. Oh, and very quickly, we've got about a minute, so knock yourself out. Uh, what's biggest, plants, animals, or bacteria as far as mass of living stuff? In one minute, it looks like plants. I always thought it was bacteria. So there's been all these claims about which uh, domain of life has the most biomass. I've heard before that it's bacteria. And a study that just came out suggests that it's actually plants. Plants, according to this huge survey of Earth's biomass, have 80% of it. Uh, but interestingly, biomass here is being measured in terms of gigatons of carbon. Okay. Um, not in terms of absolute volume or absolute weight or anything like that. Oh, okay. Gigatons of carbon. Still mm. interesting, though. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. Okay, well, it's, it's hats off, plants, for winning that one. I still think bacteria... They tried viruses. Yeah, well, viruses, as you know. Yes, of course. Did you know, Emily? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Astronomy Today with Dr Grant Christie. Is there an astronomer in the house? We need an astronomer. Oh, hello. <laughs> Hi, Graham. How are you doing, Grant? Good, thanks. Uh, first up, just a heads up that we've got uh, a link to this Harmony of the Spheres thing, which is the first subject, and that's up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. That's the easiest way to find it. There are a few on YouTube, and we're going to hear one. It's using orbits of planets and things like that as the basis for, well, basically let the music run if you assign a note to yeah, the length of an orbit. Yeah, because yeah, the... the orbital period of objects like the moons of Jupiter going around, they have natural resonances. They have uh, ratios of their orbital periods. If they didn't, then they'd start to sort of push each other around and they wouldn't be stable over a long period of time. So nature, through the laws of gravity, dictate that, you you know, objects orbiting objects like Jupiter mm. uh, have to have... Uh, ha have, to have uh, only certain resonant orbits can exist. And, of course, they can convert these into musical tones, which is what... And it's just a marvellous, uh, I think, uh, way to uh, understand that. Mm, yeah. Um, so if you've got a little planet like a Mercury-like planet in the middle, it's going to go ping, 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 and Jupiter's going to go gong. Much longer period. Yeah, Actually, exactly, we have to wait yeah. till next yeah. week, wouldn't we, for the That's next right. gong. It's That's like right. a Philip Glass yeah, bloody no, song, no. isn't it? That's right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, and then one I particularly liked was the one of the stars in the Pleiades. Oh yeah, which uh, the, the, these are some of the bright stars in the constellation uh, in the in the cluster, the Pleiades, uh, the Seven Sisters, uh, Matariki, uh, and uh, they discovered in the last few years that some of these stars actually have um, tiny pulsations. They're, they're at quite high frequencies, and so they've they uh, there's a lovely one of uh, showing the uh, tones of those stars. Those stars are all independent of each other. They're not linked by. Mm -hmm. Uh, this like the solar system clockwork idea, but uh, 
it's fascinating to see the uh, mm. and beautifully done. Yeah. Oh, well, let's play some. We've got one. You yoinked one. This is uh, the Trappist um, oh, yes. solar system, which is a, a trap. It sounds like a monk, doesn't it? Yeah, but it does. It's it was, a solar it system. Was, yeah, the telescope system uh, that discovered this. This is a sort of a ne relatively nearby um, planetary system to mm -hmm. the sun. Uh, these are planets orbiting another star, and I think there's about eight uh, known so far in that system. Okay, here we go. So there's a dong, that's one orbit of one planet. Yeah. So there's another planet in there. people this doesn't go on for uh, an hour we've got a minute left it yeah. just gives you an idea it's, it's not real time no no not real time <laughs> so each one's in orbit i want to hear when the drums come in because uh, the drums are something to do with the, the sun in the middle the star in the middle and you can make your own music from your own system by there's another link up there I think it's about eight and known in my sofa. everyone running to the exit oh well i think it's just so cool yeah and that's the death of the star at the, at the end oh well you've got to stop sometime there's actually uh, a renowned musician who did that sort of thing uh without any help from a planet uh, or, or solar systems um steve reich oh yeah um he's fascinating worth a look up thought i should mention him uh, because it would be remiss of me not to after hearing something like that. Uh, you can look him up, Steve Reich, R-E-I-C-H, uh, and the music was the, uh, music for 18 musicians, which was released about, four, I think, 40 years ago. Um, yeah, 40 years ago, 1978. All right. So it's an anniversary of that. Well, he, uh, yeah, so if you go, the, this, uh, the group uh, System Sounds who do this have got uh, a uh, YouTube uh, page and you can go there and uh, they've got lots and lots of them and they've done great video to go with them as well yeah. so you know it's really really cool to watch all right uh, we've got another wrong way asteroid is this another visitor from another solar system well it uh, it could be the you know it's still not a, a definite but basically uh, this is an object that's been found relatively recently it's just an incidental discovery uh, they weren't actually looking for anything in particular, but when they looked at its orbit and analysed it, they realised it was actually orbiting very close to the orbit of Jupiter, but going the opposite way to Jupiter, Oh, which is exceedingly unusual. So, um, so its orbit is nearly circular. Jupiter's orbit is close to being a circle around the sun, uh, and yet you've got this asteroid going around and... 
in a stable thing. So twice every orbit it passes by Jupiter. It's slightly inclined to Jupiter's orbit, not exactly in the same, otherwise it would collide it, but it's in a, a slightly inclined version of it, and it passes by other things that have collected in Jupiter's orbit as well. And... You know, the question is, how long has it been there? So they, you know, they started analysing all the possibilities on computer simulations, and they ran a computer simulation showing, you know, what if you sort of had an object like that, and you took it, like a, a million of them, just randomly started them in an orbit like that, how many would survive for four billion years? And the answer is, out of a million, about 27. Oh. <laughs> well, 27 survived in their simulation. So mm. it looks like, uh, on one hand, it looks like it's a very improbable thing but uh, quite a lot of them last sort of like seven million years so so the question is is this a object that's come from a, another sort of solar system being rather like that uh, asteroid that came through in late uh, 2016 uh, or that's right the so star. now that one came in really fast uh, and we'd expect them to be coming in fast so and it whipped around the sun and shot out again accelerated a bit by the sun's gravity so uh, it had no chance of stopping but you, if you have objects that are arriving over a billion years or more uh, just randomly arriving then there's a there's a chance that some of them will be trapped and there will be more than we think probably mm. sitting out there um but this one gives itself away probably the the thing is that it's going around the the solar system backwards and it's extremely hard to make a, a natural solar system object suddenly reverse direction and go the other way it, it really has to have been something that's entered a, into the solar system rather random direction from the outside um there's very few there's a, one of the moons of neptune orbits backwards and so it it's likely was something well it's expected that it that is part of our solar system but it was ejected from something else it was either a captured asteroid or something like that and it's just the random way it encountered neptune it, it got trapped into this reverse orbit or it could have one theory another theory is that it uh, was responsible for ejecting a moon from uh, from Neptune. In fact, uh -huh. one of, of, people argued for a while that um, that uh, Pluto or or, uh, or uh, um, objects like that w were possibly ejected in this way, but uh, we don't know that for sure, and it doesn't seem likely really. But uh, but still, so you know, it's a it's a strong clue because it's orbiting uh, backwards, and it's in an orbit that appears to have been stable over a long period of time. Mm. There is no way that that moon of Neptune that's going the wrong way could have formed with Neptune. That's no, the deal, isn't no, it? No, that's right. I mean, basically, all the stuff in the solar system is orbiting the same way as the sun is rotating. Okay. And that's the way the cloud that the solar system formed out of was rotating originally. Oh, oh don't worry, something's beating. Uh, it's, so, <clears throat> it's all right. Uh, we'll just let it beep. There's... Uh, new evidence that Planet Nine is out there, and this is supposed to be quite a significant affair, but so far away from the sun that we have a real... We can't see it. We have to... Um, until we get uh, an infrared thing to have a look at it or something. That's right. Um, yeah, so at the moment there is a big hunt on for this possible Planet Nine. It's mm. a large 
body, possibly around 10 times the mass of the Earth, orbiting a long way out beyond the other planets, uh, so far away that it would be very faint in any telescope. Uh, but within the range of modern telescopes, uh, the problem is we've really only got a, a very few clues about where in the whole sky to look, and telescopes don't have a big field of view, so, you know, you'd just be plumb lucky to find it at the moment. But the evidence for the existence of this planet comes from the orbits of known objects out in that region of the solar system uh, that are only now starting to be found, what we call the, the, um, the uh, out beyond the Kuiper belt mm. uh, in, in, in sort of... Uh, um, or sort of the nearer parts of, uh, or sort of in the vicinity of Kuiper Belt. This is material left over from the formation of the solar system, sort of there's a bunch of things out there. Um, and uh, Pluto is one of the innermost objects in that sort of group. Right. So these are really dwarf planets, uh, is often the term used for them. They're just sort of up upscaled asteroids. And so they've now found, they had found five of these things and they all out there and, and they hadn't found many so the fact they found five all with curiously aligned orbits in a, a way that could not easily be none of them none of the five could easily be explained um, and uh, that's why these two astronomers Mike Brown and uh, his collaborators at Caltech had uh, come up with a computer model that showed that if you could explain them very nicely if you had this massive planet orbiting in the outer reach of the solar system. How massive? Is it well, about ten times the mass of the Earth. So it's not okay. a, it's half the mass of something, or about half the mass of a Neptune, or something like that. Right. Or, so or this isn't just oh, let's find another little Pluto. Oh, no, 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 no. This is a serious planet, and it fits in a, a in the solar systems that have been discovered so far. Other ones, uh, you know, sort of extrasolar planets. Um, there's a, a, a class of planet called a super Earth. Now, we find them quite commonly in these solar systems that have been discovered, and, and the Kepler Space Telescope's sort of found huge numbers of these, mm -hmm. uh, these planets in this range. So these are planets that are about maybe two, three, four, five times heavier than the Earth, uh, and, but not up to the, what we call the, uh, basically the ice giants, which are like uh, Neptune and, and, uh, and Uranus, which are sort of more like sort of 15 to 20 times the mass of the Earth. So, mm -hmm. so, this, so the solar system, for some reason, although we have lots of planets, we're missing one, a super-Earth, and yet here we have something that has that sort of mass out in the outer reaches of our solar system. It's an open question. Well, we, we can't say categorically exists, but the evidence is increasing. And what's been discovered recently is another of these objects out in that part of the solar system, also with a, an orbit that's been altered in some way mm -hmm. and fits the same pattern. So, ah. so you know, basically we had sort of like five, almost five out of five and now we've got six out of six and so the, the, the story's getting stronger. And Does this narrow down the field of view that um, is likely where it, it's going it, to be? It will do to a degree and I might say there's a sort of independent um, other lines of um, sort of an, of observation that suggests that the, this object must be out there somewhere, right. um, and one of them is that the if you look at the orbital plane of all the planets in the solar system, particularly Jupiter and so yeah. on, though the orbital plane of all the planets is slightly tilted relative to the sun's equator. Now, if the planets all formed 
right in a rotating cloud, the sun in the middle and the planets all formed, then you'd expect them to be close to the plane, particularly the big planets, but not tilted up by six degrees. Oh. So that, that's quite a, a significant departure, and it's never had a good explanation, but a, this object out in the outer reach of the solar system could actually help explain those sort of anomalies, these mysteries of the solar system that can't be explained easily at the moment. That's a lot, six degrees. That's more than you require for guttering to work. Yes, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a noticeable sort yeah. of tilt compared to Something's bent us. Yeah, so all the planets are orbiting basically in the same plane. Some of them are tilted up like Mars and stuff more than that. But okay. uh, Jupiter is almost sort of uh, defines the, the plane of the solar system. So that, that's one sort of mystery. But So the other thing is, you know, was it an object that got captured by the sun early and soon after the solar system formed? So mm -hmm. it's, come, it's formed somewhere else and been caught by the sun and trapped? Or was it ejected from the interior of our solar system? So, in other words, we did once have in the central part of our solar system where the planets are, uh, we once had one of these sort of super-Earth mm. objects. It perhaps, you know, conceivably its orbit drifted, it came into contact or close to Jupiter or Saturn or something like that, where it shows it's much lighter than that and it would have got, could have got tossed out into the outer reaches of the solar system. So it's, it's still a mystery, but the evidence is mounting. And, the, I mean, basically we should know the answer for sure within about, you know, maybe five to ten years because mm. there's a massive telescope under construction, uh, which some New Zealand astronomers have a, an interest, a, a part of that project. The... Um, large synoptic survey telescope and it's going to be a monster and it's its job is simply to over, image the, the sky over and over and over again um, just recording everything that's there to very faint limits and if this object exists it'll be found by that telescope okay. but at the moment there's a big race on of course there's big kudos if you can find this object yeah. and yeah. Uh, so there are surveys underway but then they won't compete with the a large synoptic survey telescope once it starts up. Yeah, and then there's the human interest story of what the hell to name it. Well, that's right. That's right. Planet oh. Nine's got a nice ring. It has. <laughs> Planet Nine. <laughs> Although the Pluto fans will be up in arms again. There'll be marches and placards and protests. Yes, well, you know, it's... Uh yeah, we won't be visiting in a hurry, but certainly if it was discovered, then I would imagine that it would be on the cards for a spacecraft mm. to fly by It'll or visit it in there. the future. Yes, it would. Yeah, and it would be handy if that thing that went past Pluto was on target for it, but it's unlikely. No, no, it? well, it's, it's heading in a different direction. Yeah, oh. so, so basically this, the orbit of this hypo hypothetical planet is in about 600 times further from the sun than the, the uh, Earth is. Okay. So 600 astronomical units is the units that the right. measures that they use for the solar system. So is it also on the plane of the solar system? Do we know that? No, well, the the model has it sort of I think tilted up quite a bit. Oh. So it's not uh, not exactly in the plane. But mm -hmm. if it was scattered from the central solar system early in the history of the solar system, then it, you wouldn't expect it to be in the plane either. Right. In fact, you know, you basically guarantee it wouldn't be. Mm. I just one other thing on this subject. It's known, is it not that or highly likely that there have been um, children of the sun banished, that, w that we've had planets that have been kicked out? Yeah, well, certainly we don't know about actual planets, but certainly sort of asteroids and things like that have you know, been expelled and cometary bodies as well. Okay. So, yeah, so we know that surrounding the sun there's this huge population of comets that uh, we only see very occasionally, and they're too far away to sort of see that directly with telescopes, they're too faint. But uh, we know they're there, um, and they extend out 
up to you know sort of an, even up to a light year away from the sun. That's a long way. Mm. I mean, that's that's you know a lot further than uh, the uh, Voyager spacecraft, for example. Right, right. It's about how far light travels in a year. That's a long. Way. It, it is a long. It's about way. a light year, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, it's four light years to the nearest, four and a bit light years to the nearest star. So mm. you know that that's a sort of scale about you know a quarter of the distance to the nearest star okay. as the outer reaches of the sun's gravitational hold. Well, far, far, far closer to home than you can probably imagine is the moon, about 240,000 miles away or... Um, kilometres. Kilometres, about, about that. Um, now, moon dust, super toxic to human cells. Yes, um, I hadn't really followed this story much. I mean, obviously, interested in the uh, Apollo missions and stuff uh, in the years gone by, but it's, uh, yeah, so this is... Um, what they're finding is, and it's been known now for a little while, uh, in fact, even astronauts who were on the Apollo mission had sort of a lot of breathing issues um, having been out walking around on the lunar surface, come back in, they've got dust on their suits and breathing in the dust into their lungs. Oh. And so they ended up with sort of like all sorts of little issues. So what's special about lunar dust? What's special about lunar dust is it never, it hasn't been subject to any sort of erosion. It's like on Earth, anything on the surface of the Earth, dust in a desert or something, it's been rolling around on the surface, blown by wind and everything else, so it's been ground up and it's sort of rounder. But lunar dust, which is formed pretty much always by um, impacts on the surface of the Moon, uh, smashing into things and just fragmenting these tiny fragments, uh, tiny and they're sharp. So they they have a very damaging effect on cells. So if you breathe them into your lungs, they'll start to chop up the cells of your lungs and mm. sort of create, yeah, you'll end up with infections and all sorts of other issues that follow on from that. So, so the other thing about being on the moon is that the lunar dust levitates. It doesn't just sit on the ground. So it's not just uh, that you can walk around quietly and not puff it up too much. It's actually being brought up by the solar wind. So it's, it's caught by the magnetic field of the sun, effectively causing these little dust particles to sort of come off the surface and they're, they're sort of around you all the time. It's really? not as if you're, you can just stand there and they won't affect you. I mean, you know, the, the solar wind is dragging the magnetic field of the sun, effectively is dragging these things up. Uh off the surface, so you can't escape it that way. Um, there is a dust that has had no erosion at all on Earth, and that's volcanic dust. That's fresh. That's right, and that's a very good point, actually, because that's sort of the sample they've been using to do some of these tests. So there's been, this is stuff has been tested for, like, the last few decades. It's not as if this is some great new thing, but okay. in the labs it's been doing I just wasn't aware of it. Um, and they've done lots of experiments and on lab animals and other things as well like mm. that. So, um, but, yeah, so... So they're doing more experiments now on and using volcanic dust as a as a, um, a sort of surrogate for lunar dust. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's probably I think the lunar dust is a lot finer. Yeah. Uh, but there's still uh, you know you can use sort of get uh, quite a bit of stuff. But I mean it's you know it causes DNA damage, um, uh, all sorts of issues like that. That's fine. Yeah, and, and this lunar dust that they've used, they, they've tested, they've got sort of cells, human cells, from um, just taking a swab. Um, so they've got lunar, um, they've, and, they've, they've, and they've grown them in um, lung tissue, basically, grown it in a Petri dish. So they've got these cells, and then they sort of look at what happens when those cells are sort of put into contact with the lunar, this lunar dust surrogate. Right. 
Rats, you've got the day off. <laughs> That's right. Well, they, they're sort of, uh, you know, but they have done experiments on live animals in the right, past, right. I might say. Okay. But uh, that, So what they find is that the, it's about 90% lethal to the cells. Oh, so it, it, the stuff the cells react very badly in the presence of this sort of this type of uh, dust. It's quite toxic and uh, physically damaging. So it's uh, and that'll be true on an asteroid or wherever you land, wherever there's stuff like that sitting there in the vacuum of space, because particles from the sun and small meteorites hitting the surface of the moon will tend to break up things into smaller and smaller. That's why the dust is so fine. Mm. So you don't, uh, you know, eventually over time, small grains will get just broken up into smaller and smaller pieces. Well, wise to be wary of this stuff, but Buzz Aldrin's doing quite well at 80-something, isn't it? It hasn't killed anyone. No, it hasn't. It has, not, none of the astronauts that actually went there uh, were lethally affected. Gasping but blood coming out their noses, they yoinked out from the that's sea. That's right, but if you inadvertently took in a big sort of mouthful of it or something like that... Not for consumption. Don't eat this planet. <laughs> but it, well, it, Mar, dust on Mars, too, has, is also very fine and has a really bad effect on machinery up there. So that's oh, why yeah, yeah, yeah. Americans have done so well to keep some of their... Um, little crawlers uh, running, uh, Spirit mm. and Opportunity and uh, Curiosity running on the surface, um, even though this fine dust just gets into everything. Mm. And you have to design for that. Okay, let's uh, talk about the new... Our, our, our favourite astronomical body... Uh, probably mine, the neutron star. Spooky stuff. And what can they tell us about dark matter? Well, the, yeah, so the neutrons, um, well, the, this, this is interesting because, yes, I mean, yeah, that's right, neutron stars are sort of a, one of the sort of real um, powerhouses of uh, the universe, um, one step away from a black hole. And you know, a little over a year ago, we saw the sort of merger for the first time of a pair of orbiting neutron stars that sort of blend, merge into one object and create a gravitational wave. It's very exciting. Um, but the, the question is just, you know, what do we actually really know about neutrons? Um, so, you know, if you, uh, neutrons, all our atoms have neutrons in the nucleus. So there's protons and neutrons. Um, and you can't just have a nucleus of just protons because it's not stable. A hydrogen can uh -huh. have just one proton, that's okay. But when you get a whole bunch of neutrons there, uh, uh, protons in a nucleus, you have to have a, a decent number of prot uh, ne neutrons as well to keep the things, whole thing stable. So neutrons are, are sort of like a proton, but there's a bit more to them. Uh -huh. um, so they only have, and if you pull out a neutron out of a nucleus, just have it isolated, then it'll basically have a half-life of about 15 minutes. In 15 minutes, it'll decay into a proton, an electron, and uh, this little particle called an antineutrino. So the neutron isn't unconditionally stable when it's by itself. It, it'll decay away, and so you uh, leaving behind uh, protons. So there's different ways you can measure that half-life, and the, the one way is to have a stream of um, neutrons coming out of a, a particle accelerator of some sort, um, and so you've got neutrons coming out, and you simply, uh, during as they stream away, some of them will be converting into protons, mm -hmm. and if you count how many protons and how long you do it for, you can work out the half-life of the decay of those neutrons. Um, However, you can also take a bunch of neutrons and contain them in an ultra-cold vessel uh, and uh, look at their decay that way. And in that case, uh, you're simply counting up how many um, neutrons mm -hmm. 
you know, you know how many neutrons are still there. You can't tell that in the beam. You, all you can do is count the protons. So, so these two experiments give slightly different answers, and they differ in the half-life by about sort of nine seconds now. Over 15 minutes, that doesn't sound like a, a lot, but it's actually a critical and unexplained difference. Ah. So one of the theories that has uh, been put up is that... Um, and uh, particle physicists around the world are sort of tr racing to tr get this because whoever figures this out gets a Nobel Prize. Right. Um, but uh, basically... Try that, Trump. They're arguing that a small percentage of those decays of neutrons produce dark, some uh, extra particle that we don't know yet, which is a, like a, a dark matter particle. So you could, you could say that there's, this is a possible explanation. Dark matter particle would work. Well, it, it can account for it. They don't know too much about the actual the, the mechanism by that, mm. but they're, what they're arguing is that this is another way of looking at the problem of dark matter. Um, people are excited about neutron stars, for example, because when we watch them spinning around each other and then merging and recording the gravitational waves, it's a way of working out how stiff and hard those neutron stars were in the final moments. Right. They can calculate that. And if they find that they're very squishy, that tells them quite a lot about how much dark matter might be inside those Okay. Uh, those objects. So it's uh, so understanding the sort of failure of neutrons is critical to understanding um, the behaviour of neutron stars, but also understanding the you know the the whole much bigger question really of dark matter and how what is dark matter? We know it's there. We can see the effects of rotation of galaxies, all that sort of stuff. There's all sorts of evidence for dark matter, but what it is at a physical level is not understood. Well, if neutrons have this half-life, why don't neutron stars just evaporate? Um, <laughs> the, when they're when they're all compressed all together, they they have a, a sort of a have a stability. Basically, oh, okay. they they, st they didn't start off as neutrons either. They were sort of as as, a, as a, the matter got compressed and compressed, the electrons and the protons sort of were squished together and formed neutrons. Right. And it's held that way by the gravity of the neutron star. Okay, thank you, um, Grant Christie. Thank you very much, and we'll talk again next week. Good seeing. Yeah, cheers, Graham. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. New sport and weather coming up next and keep your ears peeled to win double passes to the Documentary Edge Festival. It's 9 o'clock. Good evening.